with any if I can't. Okay. So welcome guys. Today we're doing uh, two books. Today we're doing Ephesians and we're doing Colossians. So we'll look at those two together. Um, there's a bit of an overlap between the two books, right, in terms of the content and, um, you know, what we can learn from them. So that's why we're doing them together, because they, they teach largely the same thing. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Ephesians. I think we'll spend most of our time there tonight. Um, and then we'll look at Colossians over there. So keep your finger in your, in your Bible. We might do a lot of um, page turning. And yeah, if you guys have any, any questions, any thoughts, any disagreements, anything you want to share, please feel free to stop me and uh, say what you need to say. Okay, so let's start with Ephesians. Um, now, both Ephesians and Colossians seem to be circular letters, right? Which means that they are letters that were not just meant for one location. They were meant to be spread around that region. So the, the one congregation would get the letter, they would read it, and then send it to the next congregation to read. So if you turn to chapter 1, look at uh, verse 1 of Ephesians. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And uh, also in Colossians. So let me just read Colossians for you. Colossians chapter 4 verse 16 says, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read... In the churches of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea right so uh, you can see that, that the letters were meant to be spread and we believe that the letter from Laodicea that's mentioned in Colossians is the letter to the Ephesians that we're doing right now so these were passed around and within within Ephesians and Colossians within these books there's a shift in the emphasis in Paul's theology Right. So starting from here, these are his later letters. Right. He writes them uh, later on in his ministry. And Ephesians is written around the year AD 62. And he wrote these letters from prison. So these are his prison letters, which is something to keep in mind and to know, because he'll be talking about Christ and he'll be talking about joy and he'll be saying encouraging things to the Philippians. But he's saying all of this from jail. You know, if you and I were in jail, I think that encouraging other people would probably be the last thing on our minds, right? But not Paul. Uh, Paul didn't just talk a good talk. He lived it, right? He lived, um, he lived what he preached. And one of the shifts in his theology is that in his earlier letters, Paul focused on what was coming. So, for example, he talked about eschatology, which is the study of the end times. He would often point us forward to the return of the Lord. And remind us of his second coming and what is going to happen then. But in these letters, he focuses on future truths that are realities now. So, for example, if you were an Old Testament believer, as you read the scriptures, you would see the promises and you would look forward to them. Right? You looked for, a, for the coming of a Messiah. And the expectation is that the Messiah would come and that things would radically change. And then things would be like that forever. So you'd expect that when the Messiah came, the kingdom would come and then life would go on like that. Right. That there wouldn't be anything else to wait for. But the Lord Jesus comes and we see that he inaugurates the kingdom, but he doesn't consummate it. 
right? The kingdom is established, but it is not yet in its full consummated form. So Jesus came, but we know that Jesus is coming back again. And when he comes back, only then will things be radically changed, right? There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. So the Old Testament believer thought that the first coming would bring the new heavens and a new earth, right? So you and I, we are in an age where the kingdom of God has come, but it's also an evil age. When Christ comes back, there will be an end to the evil age and the start of the new heavens and a new earth. So I hope that makes sense. That is why this life that we're living is full of tension as believers. It's, it's Romans 7, right? Because we live in the intersection of two ages. There's, there's a collision, there's a clash. And so Paul will speak of the war going on between the spirit and the flesh, right? The things that I want to do, I don't. The things that I do want to do, uh, I don't do them, right? It's a fight. You and I have blessings which will be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. But even now we do get to experience something of those blessings, right? The word that is used to describe this is, is proleptic. So proleptic is the foreshadowing or anticipation of future events. We get blessings from the future and we experience, we experience them now. We get them now. Not fully, but some of them are true for us now. And Paul is focusing on that. And it's important for us to, to realize that truth because we deal with doubts and we deal with anxiety and worry and fears and temptations and trials. So we need to remember that actually right now I am in Christ, right? Right now I'm seated in heavenly places. Right now I can experience the love, joy and peace of God, which I will perfectly experience in the new heavens and the new earth, right? Does that make sense? So it's the the future reality, but we get to experience something of it right now. So um, chapter one, in chapter one, right, if you turn there, this chapter has the longest sentence in the Bible. So from verses three to 14, it is one long sentence in the original Greek. So when they translated it to English, they put uh, all the, the, the full stops and the commas and all that stuff. Um, but in the Greek, it's just one sentence. And in the sentence, the term in Christ is found 11 times, just in one sentence. And that is one of the main theme, themes in this book. It's union with Christ, being in Christ. In fact, in this book, the word in, right, I-N, is found 216 times. And you'll see that when you read uh, Ephesians, you'll see that constantly. Uh, in Christ, uh, in heavenly places, in love, in this, in this, in that. So look at verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So there's many theological truths there, right? Paul is throwing out all these huge statements. These are facts. These are truths. And so verse 4, he says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And that is the doctrine of election, right? Before anything was created, God chose his people. God chose those who would be his people. And God predestined them to what? To be blameless, to be holy. God saved us. And he didn't just save us. He saved us to be holy, to be set apart. So 
there is an outworking of the salvation, right? There is a purpose and a consequence of God's saving, which is to be holy. God has called us to be holy. So look at verse 5. He says, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And there's what is called the, the golden chain of salvation. And the golden chain of salvation describes um, how we are saved, right? It's based on Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, I think verse 20, 28 to 30, right? So the golden chain of uh, salvation says we are foreknown, then we're predestined, and then we are called and justified and glorified, right? Now verse 5 over here says that we are adopted, right? And adoption is probably the high point in the golden chain of salvation, God didn't just choose people to be saved and then say, okay, these people, I'm going to save them and declare them righteous. I'm going to kill my own son so that they can be de declared righteous. And now I'm going to leave it there. He didn't just, he didn't just leave us there, right? God could have done that. We could have been saved so that we are servants in heaven after this life or assistants to the angels. But the Lord doesn't just save us. He adopts us. He brings us into his family. And that is amazing. Something in scripture that tends to be neglected and forgotten is the doctrine of adoption. We are adopted into the family of God. We are made sons and daughters with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a beautiful truth to meditate on. We know that God is our father, right? We say it in our prayers, but I think we normally don't actually think about the reality of that. We should think more deeply about how amazing it is that we are part of God's family. He is our father, right? He chose us and brought us into his family. And when you think about it that way, you can see how sanctification is the process of, of now learning to live in this new family, right? Just like how when a child is adopted, um, you know, maybe in his previous family, they used to, uh, when, when they ate dinner, they all ate in their own rooms or in front of the TV. But now in this new family, you eat at the table, right? So in the same way, in God's family, we have to learn how to do things the way God has ordered his family to be, right? We have to learn how to be holy and what it looks like. Uh, this is how you use your body. This is how you speak. This is how you should treat others, how you should use your time, your money and abilities. So why then are we adopted into Christ Jesus? Verse six tells us, it says, to the praise of his glorious grace. And if you are not in Christ, maybe that sounds rude and tyrannical, right? But for the child of God, it is beautiful. It is to his glory, and you wouldn't want it any other way. It must be to his glory. Otherwise, if it is not to his glory, then it wouldn't be what is best. Because what brings, what brings God glory is good. It's always good, and it's always the best. Verse 7, he says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us, the mystery of his will. So you see, that is something that is known to us now. The mystery of his will of his will has been revealed. There's no more mysteries. There's no more biblical mysteries. So the word mystery, as it is as it is used in the New Testament, has the idea of doctrines or truths that were in the Old Testament but were not clearly seen. They were mysterious. But now in Christ it is clear. That doesn't mean that the Old Testament we wouldn't understand God's sovereignty or the Trinity or his attributes. But when it's using the word mysteries, it's the things that were not clear in the Old Testament. 
So Paul will talk about the mystery of the Gentiles. Was it always God's plan to include the Gentiles in his family? Yes, you can find that in the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, it wasn't clear as to how God is going to include the Gentiles in his people. But in the New, we see how God is going to do it. It's through Christ, right? Christ died to bring Jew and Gentile to God. So we can clearly see it now. Right now, we can know Christ. We can know that the kingdom has come and that it is for Jew and Gentile together. We can know that there is no more division of Jew and Gentile. It is no longer a mystery. Now it's a reality for God's people. So verse 10, it says, As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of, of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, was sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, of, sorry, with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So again, it's all to the praise of his glory. It's all to God's glory. And so right now, if you are a child of God, you have the Holy Spirit. That is a guarantee. That's what we see from the passage there. And the word for guarantee here can be translated as a down payment. So how do you know that you are going to gain this inheritance? How do you know that you will acquire possession of it? Well, it's because you have the down payment of the Holy Spirit. And that is a very practical picture that Paul gives us to understand the reality, right? It's a down payment. When you buy a car or you buy a house, you put down a payment on it to secure it, to say that um, I, will, I will pay the rest, right? And so the Lord says here, here is my down payment, my guarantee, the Holy Spirit. Don't worry, um, you will be given the fullness of it, the full reality in the new heavens and the new earth, right? You will get it all. And that is true right now, right? It's not something that we have to like wait and like, oh, okay, whatever. It's true right now. And so Paul is looking forward to the consummation of this reality. But don't make the mistake that uh, there is nothing happening right now, right? We don't only look forward to the promise because the promise of being in Christ, the promises of being in Christ are at work even right now. I hope that makes sense. So if you go to chapter 2 then, chapter 2 verse 1 he says and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind so this is such an an accurate description of the human nature being dead in trespasses, living under the control of the devil, being sons of disobedience, giving in to our lusts and our passions. That is where naturally all human beings find themselves. When it comes to, when it comes to death, so death in scripture doesn't, doesn't mean what we might normally think, which is just dying. Death has the idea of separation in scripture. So even physical death is the separation of the spirit from the body. Eternal death in hell means eternal separation from the gracious attributes of God. So when it says that a person is spiritually dead, it doesn't mean that the person has no spirit or that their spirit has frozen and it ceased to exist. 
what it means is that they are spiritually cut off from God. Because, know this, unbelievers are very spiritual, right? Uh, I think because atheism has, atheism has got great PR, it gets all the attention out there and in the media, uh, uh, but very few people are actually atheists, very few. And even the few that are, are hardly consistent with their lives as, as atheists, right? A large majority of people believe that there is a God or at least some deity. People are very much spiritual because we were made to worship, right? It's how God made us. We spend our lives worshiping. Sadly, unbelievers end up turning to the universe, to idols, to false gods, or they make themselves gods, right? Uh, they are holding candles and trying to manifest things. They, are, they look up at the stars to determine what is going to happen in their lives. Those people are cut off from spiritual life in Christ, and they are not able to do anything to please God. And Paul says, the natural man, because Paul says, the natural man cannot please God. It is not possible. And you can't believe in God because you are spiritually cut off from him. You are separated from him. So that is what it means when we are dead in our trespasses. The unbeliever is just living in sin, right? They are not able to come to God. Not that they want to. It's not as though people want to come to Christ, but they are not allowed to, or that Christ is turning them away. Nobody desires God and nobody seeks after God naturally. When they do seem to seek after God, um, they actually go after a God that they have created, a God that they have made in their own minds. And to put it in the, so to put it in the politest way, we are children of wrath by nature, right? Deserving of God's judgment. And if that was the end of the story, then there's nothing we can do. We are hopeless. But look at verse 4. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and, see, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So where are you sitting right now? It's an easy answer. You are sitting wherever you're sitting. It's at home, in the car, uh, in res. But you're also seated in heavenly places. And that is the right now. You and I are seated there in Christ. So if you are seated there, then you can be sure of your salvation. You can't be there and not make it, right? It is impossible because he has already adopted you and he saved you while you were dead in your sins and your trespasses, right? He's not going to kick you out now. It's not, not, it's not like, um, remember, God saves you when you're still in your trespasses. It's not like now that you're actually trying to be to live for god um, he's going to reject you no he saved you when you're at your worst and so you can rest assured you can rest easy in that god has saved you because of christ and not because of anything you have done and so he says verse 7 so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in christ jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of god not as not a result of work so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So that is the difference between true Christianity, false Christianity, and every false religion. You are saved by grace alone. It is a free gift, not by works. You don't have to prove yourself first, and then you can get saved. How do you receive the salvation? It's a gift. You receive, you receive it like a child receives a gift. You just receive. 
right? A child doesn't receive a gift and then ask, how much do I owe you, right? Just receives it and takes joy in it. But that does not mean that there are no works, right? Now that God has saved you, he has not just saved you now and you, and, and you can do your own thing, right? He has saved you to do good, good works. He has a purpose for you and me, right? So look at, that's what verse um, 10 says, right? Which it's for works that God had prepare, prepared beforehand. And so this is a truth that can actually be very liberating to know that you have a purpose, to know that you are here for a reason. You have a mission. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Verse 10 says, works which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. And many of us Christians don't understand this reality. So many Christians live their lives and they just go with the wind. They do nothing but sit idle. You know, they're stumbling around with their lives. They waste their lives. They go to church and then go home. And for the rest of the, for the, week, for the, rest of the week, they just live their lives for themselves. Or they don't know what they are doing and they spend their days making plans for the here and the now, for this life, for gain in this world. We need to understand that we are predestined to good works. We are men and women of destiny. When you read history, world history, not just Christian history, you will see that the men and women who have changed the world have been men and women who believe they had a destiny. So think of your Alexander the Great, your Napoleon, Walt Disney, Steve Jobs. They had direction. They had a grand purpose for their lives, you know, whether it was to create the greatest computer or to conquer the world or to be the first to go out into space, to land on the moon. They were able to change the world because they had a destiny that they were persuaded to accomplish, right? So granted, for most of them, it was out of ego and pride, but the principle is true. In the same way, us Christians should be persuaded to accomplish great things for the sake of the gospel. I mean, we have the greatest thing, which is the gospel, the kingdom of God, right? And so we should spend our days with that great destiny, working to bring it, to, to spread it to, um, to the world, to people in our family, to people um, in our social circles, etc., etc. And so Paul then goes on to talk about this mystery of Jew and Gentile now being one, coming together into the family of God and how Christ has united us. And what we can learn from that practically is that it has to do with all the cultures and with all their differences being united in Christ. And that is a beautiful reality, right? Christ is making a new humanity out of all the nations. So, okay, so that's, so that's a, an overview of the first three chapters, right? That's the first three chapters of Ephesians. And this book breaks up nicely into two sections, chapters 1 to 3 and then 4 to 6. So chapters 1 to 3 has all the indicatives it is telling us who we are, right? It is establishing our identity in Christ. Paul is saying, this is who you are. You were saved in Christ Jesus. This is how you were saved. This is who your identity is rooted in. This is the God whose family you have been adopted into. Now we get to the second half of the book, chapters 4 to 6, which is application. And here Paul is saying, in light of this truth, in light of you um, uh, repenting of your sins and putting your faith in Christ, in light of you being in Christ, this is how you should live. This is how you walk as a Christian. So going back to the analogy, the analogy of being in God's family, these are the house rules. right? This is how you conduct yourself as a child of God in God's family. right? So this is where you find all the commandments. As a Christian, do this, 
or don't do this. So if you look at chapter four, let's start with chapter four. If you turn to chapter four, verse one. So Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So in light of all this theology, all these glorious truths of who you are in Christ, that right now you are seated in heavenly places, this is how you should live. And this is very important because if you take, if you, if you take away the commands, right, uh, if you just have the theology, you know, the first three chapters of, Ephesian, of Ephesians, then in a sense, you could also just have any religion in the world. Because what is stopping you from walking into a synagogue or into a mosque or into a Buddhist temple and doing what they do? What is stopping you from living like the world, right? Um, God has called us to be holy, right? He's called us he, and he tells us what that looks like. So we have the theology. Now we have the commands. Like this is how you be separate. This is how you live holy. And another thing to note is that when it comes to now the second half, the, the, the application, right? Our striving for holiness must be rooted in Christ. So you can't strive for holiness. You can't do chapters 4 to 6 and ignore chapters 1 to 3, right? It is rooted in Christ. It is walking to please Him. The commands are not commands for the sake of it. They flow from the fact that I am a Christian rooted in Christ. And so these are not just rules. And it's important for it to not just be rules. If we make it a thing of do this, don't do this, or, um, you know, uh, just a, a black and white statement, we run the risk of creating two types of people in the church. Either people who are really depressed because they can't do it. They say, I don't, I don't love my wife like Christ loves the church. Or I don't submit to my husband like, uh, like the church does to Christ. I don't honor my parents or I, I don't treat my children correctly. And so a person will think, man, I'm useless. You know, I'm a bad person. And they, it can lead to depression or you will create a person who is self-righteous because you think, oh, I'm an amazing husband. You know, I'm the greatest wife. Uh, this spouse of mine doesn't deserve me. Thank you, Paul, for reminding me in Ephesians of how great I am. And that is what the Pharisees were like, right? So their standards were lower. The, the standards of the Pharisees were lower than God's standards, obviously, but they were higher than what people could attain and it crushed the people. Right. Or else the people became self-righteous. And have you noticed that that's what false religion tends to do to, to people? Right. It does that to them. If you look at false religions in the world, they produce pride and arrogance in people and then suicide. Right. Can you see how it's the same thing? It's self-righteousness or it's crushing people by setting standards that they cannot attain. And so they give up. It's two sides of the same coin. And so with just rule keeping, you won't have real holiness. But at the same time, if you just have theology and don't obey commands, people will not be challenged. If you just go to church and you, you preach Jesus and Jesus loves you and Jesus is wonderful, it's never going to be practical. So you'll just be making people feel good, right? We also need to, we need to also preach the works that Jesus has called us to. We need both. So if you look at chapter 4 verse 20, Paul will say, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have learned him, learned about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self 
created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul will, will speak about putting off and putting on, right? Put off the old self, put on the new self, put off the old works and put on the new works. If all I ever do is take off all my clothes, then I have a problem. I'm just naked. I also need to put on, put on new clean clothes. If you just try to stop something, you know, I want to stop lying. I want to stop stealing. I want to stop lusting. It's not going to work, right? I need to do something to replace that. There's, there's no neutrality in the Christian walk. So rather, instead of saying, um, say, instead, instead of stealing, I will give. Instead of lying, I aim to be a faithful witness and tell the truth. Instead of lusting, I'm going to pursue holiness, right? We are, we are often trying to stop something, but we are not actively trying to replace it with something else. Whenever you go to uh, a drug rehabilitation center, what they tell you in rehab, what they try to do with the patients is they try to get them off of one addiction and get them into another one, right? That is one of the main strategies. We want them to stop heroin and use cigarettes instead, right? Because if you try to stop heroin or cocaine, point blank, cold turkey, nine times out of 10, you will, you will fall, right? You, will, you won't be able to, and you'll go back to the same habits. And that is the principle, right? Although with secular people, what they're doing is they're actually exchanging one idol for another. Whereas Christians, we should be exchanging our idols for God, right? We should be exchanging our idols for serving and worshiping the true and living God. Exchange your worldly habits for godly habits, so that's, that's what chapter 4 in Ephesians is about, right? So putting on, putting off. And so then when you get to chapters 5 and 6, Paul goes more into this. He gives a lot of practical examples. And he talks about slaves and masters. And he talks about parents and children. And he talks about husbands and wives. And it's significant because those three categories cover pretty much the main part of our lives, right? It covers the whole scope of life. It's marriage, husbands and wives family, parents and children, and work, slaves and masters. So um, if you turn to chapter 5, in chapter 5, uh, firstly, Paul contrasts for us the characteristics of the regenerate and the unregenerate, right? the believer and the unbeliever. And he says in verse 7 of chapter 5, he says that the children of light should not be partakers together with the children of disobedience. The one group is darkness and the other light. The one group is fruitless and the other is fruitful. The one is foolish and the other one is wise. That's in verse 15 of chapter 5. And then from verse 21, he talks about headship and submission. So uh, verse 22, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and, sorry, his church, sorry, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Right? So submission and sacrifice are the characteristics of a spirit-filled marriage. And what you get from this section is, so firstly, wives are to, sub, are to make sure to be submissive to their own husbands. That's verse 22. And this is because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And this means that as the church is subject to Christ in obedience, so wives should be subject to their own husbands in everything. That's verse 24. 
And Paul's instruction to husbands is that they are to sacrifice themselves for their wives in love. Right? Um, uh, just like Christ sacrificed himself with the goal to, to cleanse and sanctify his bride, so should husbands follow that example. Right? Christ did this so that his church would ultimately be purified. And so in the same way, men must love their wives. That's what he says, verse 27 and verse 28. And then Paul then says in verse 29 that nobody hates his own body, right? But rather they take care of it. And um, that's, yeah, that's, to, to, that's just to highlight how if you love someone, you will take care of it, right? Take care of them. And so marriage is a creation ordinance. Paul cites Genesis. He says a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife as one flesh with her. And this is a great mystery. He says this in verse 31. Going back to what we were saying about mysteries in the Old Testament, but in the, in the New Testament, this mystery has, re, has been revealed when it, with regards to marriage. And what does the mystery of a man and a woman joining together in marriage actually mean? Verse 32, it refers upward to Christ and the church. So in the meantime, men make a point of loving your wives or when you do have a wife, Lord willing, and you wives make a point of respecting and revering your husbands if you, when you do have a husband. And so again, submission and sacrifice are the characteristics of a spirit-filled marriage because these are high and very difficult commands, right? Who can love anyone like Christ loved the church? And apart from the work of the spirit, this standard for marriage is absolutely impossible. But when the spirit is active, it is not impossible to live this way. So some things that I will say, right? particularly about submission as commanded for wives, because submission has become a dirty word in our culture, right? And submission is a word that causes many Christians to feel embarrassed and even ashamed in this day and age of feminism. Scripture, firstly, firstly Scripture teaches a doctrine and it teaches it plainly, right? It is biblical truth. This means that Christians who are embarrassed by any mention of submission are actually embarrassed by something else which is the authority of God so remember what Jesus said in Luke 9 verse 26 he says whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the son of man be ashamed when he comes when he comes in his glory so those Christians who come across passages like this and are always in a hurry to explain what it doesn't mean look we can spend a lot of time learning what things don't mean in scripture so Often I see people apologizing for this, for this doctrine. Oh, it doesn't mean abuse or it doesn't mean that women are not empowered. But we must be aware of the tendency of embarrassed Christians to simply state what submission does not mean and then to keep quiet. Right? They keep quiet and they fall silent out of fear of the backlash that they will get. But we must speak the truth. Right? We must speak the truth and not fear man. Biblical headship and submission is not just the absence of abuse because that's, it's definitely that. But it is headship and submission as commanded by God. So what does it mean, right? What is submission and how should we live in light of that? So just taking the teachings of scripture and putting them together, uh, what we see here in starting in Ephesians says, A woman should submit to her husband as to the Lord. Because even as Colossians 3.18 says, for a woman to submit to her own husband is fitting. So wives are, be, are to be submissive to their husbands, even those who do not obey the word. 
That's what First Peter chapter 3 tells us. And in Titus, it says that older women are instructed to teach the younger women how to be obedient to their husbands. In the church, a woman should learn in silence with all submission. And in the church, the women are commanded are to be under obedience as the law requires. That's in 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians. It says if she has a question, she can ask her husband at home, right? So submission is commanded by God of women in marriage and in the church. And it is the duty of Christian women everywhere to submit as the Lord has said. But notice also that scripture requires women to be submissive to their own husbands, not to be submissive to men, right? To their own husbands. This means that she is excluded from submitting to any other man. In fact, the Lord has intended this to be a protection for her because her husband is ideally is a man who has promised before God and before witnesses when they get married to lay down his life for her, to provide for her and to protect her. It's like a personal bodyguard, right? And the doctrine of headship and submission means that men are responsible for the state of their marriages and their homes. Now, there really is a thing, you know, that we can call toxic masculinity. Men who are aggressive or insecure, men who are self-absorbed and sociopathic and egotistical, and women really do need to be protected and guarded from men. They need this because there really is toxic masculinity. But here is the plot twist. The ones who are capable of protecting women from these toxic men are the men, right? The only thing capable of protecting women from toxic masculinity is masculinity. Feminism can't do it. The government can't do it. Only men can. In fact, as men, it is our duty to protect, right? It's in our nature. And what you have seen is that masculinity itself, you know, even biblical masculinity has been labeled as toxic. You know, you've heard smash the patriarchy, right? But the truth is that men are of necessity going to be dominant, right? They always will be. The patriarchy is inevitable. Men have strength and that God-given strength is meant to be used for good, for the protection of the weak and the poor and the vulnerable. But because of sin, that strength is used to accomplish evil, to hurt and to wound and to destroy. And uh, feminism, which is an, an ungodly, unbiblical ideology, has actually managed to outlaw and to neutralize constructive male dominance. Hence why, maybe today, the reason why, it's the reason why men are so effeminate, so weak, so apathetic. And the consequence of the sexual revolution and feminism, I would argue, and maybe what society is finally starting to realize is that far from empowering women, they've actually started to empower destructive male dominance. Right? And, they, and there isn't any constructive male dominance to stop it. And so it's sad when you go on social media and you see videos of women being attacked or mugged and the men you can see in the video are standing on the sidelines just watching with their phones out recording. Right? It's, it's a sad thing. It shouldn't, be, it shouldn't be the case, but that is where we are as a society. But uh, another thing that I need to mention about this, right, uh, uh, about the whole headship and submission point is that Look, the Bible does not teach that husbands are to enforce the requirement that is given to wives, right? It's not a husband's job to make their wife submit because true submission is a matter of the heart, right? A husband doesn't even have the capacity to make that happen. 
So his first task and his only task is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. He's to lead by example. And so um, Paul talks about marriage, headship and submission, talks about family and, um, and, uh, and work. And the principle flows even to those areas, right? So remember that the, the home, the, the relationship between husband and wife is in many ways the ideal, it's the paragon, it's the, the first one, it's the building block of, found, of uh, society. And then it, those principles filter out right into the rest of these relationships so you can take the principles of headship and submission into those other relationships right children are to be submission submitted and obeying their parents uh, slaves must be uh, um, submissive and obeying their masters and and in the same way that men are told to love and to treat their wives this way paul goes on to say that uh, masters treat your slaves like this parents treat your slave or your children like this you know with love um, with respect etc etc Okay, I think uh, we're going to have to leave it there with, with Ephesians. Are there any other questions? Are there any questions or comments before we move on to Colossians? Okay, that seems like a no. Okay, then let's turn to Colossians quickly. So... Okay, so Colossians is written to the church in Colossia and the churches in Colossia and Colossia was a bit more than like a hundred miles from Ephesus. And so remember, remember the two letters to the respective churches are written around the same time. Uh, the, the Paul had heard a number of good things about the church over there, but there was also some troubling things, some false teaching that was circulating among them. So this letter and Ephesians, like I said earlier, are very similar, which is why we're doing them together. And you'll see the overlap in when you when you read it between uh, Ephesians and Colossians, right? And uh, so I encourage you to read it in your spare time, and you will see that you'll pick up a lot of it. And so this book is also very very Christocentric. You know, uh, it speaks a lot about Christ. It's it's about in Christ, um, and and uh, it has this beautiful section where it deals with the preeminence of Christ. So if you look at chapter 1, verse 15, uh, chapter 1, verse 15, he says, speaking of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So Jehovah's Witnesses, they love this verse, right? If you run into them and you get into a discussion with them uh, and you dispute them, they'll come to this passage and they'll say, you see, over here it says that Jesus was the firstborn, so he was not God because he was created, Right? But firstly, the word that is used in the Greek for firstborn over here can also mean preeminent. He is the preeminent one, one of creation. And when you read the rest of the passage, you get firstly more and more this idea of Christ as preeminent, as above all, as greater than all. And you'll realize that Jesus could not have been created. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, For by, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him and he is before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body the church he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent 
So the passage itself tells you that he cannot be created because Jesus created everything. How can a created being be the creator? It's, it's a fallacy. It's, it's logically impossible. God is not a created being. If he was, he would not be God. And the passage makes it clear that it is everything. He created everything, visible things, invisible things. Everything was created by him. What the Jehovah's Witness do is in their Bibles, they have actually changed the passage and its meaning because they don't want it to say that. And it's, it's a demonic thing, right? They've added and taken away from God's word. They've twisted God's word. They want God's word to mean something else. And so they change it to make it seem as if Jesus was created first as just a created being. When in reality, Jesus Christ is eternal. And here, Paul is simply telling us that he is greater than any and all things, right? He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's the preeminent one. And so there are, there are some people who say that uh, because it is all of grace, right? I can, when it comes to Christ and being a Christian, I can put my hand up and ask for forgiveness, ask Jesus into my heart, but then carry on with my life exactly like I did before. People who say Jesus is my savior, but he is not yet my Lord. Imagine there is a woman who is a prostitute who comes into a church service, prays for somebody, tells people she's saved, but then carries on with her life in the exact same way on Monday, right? To her, Jesus is her savior, but not her Lord. Scripture is clear, though, that to be united to Christ is to be part of his church. And here we are told that he is the head of the church. He is Lord. You cannot have one without the other. You can't say he is my savior, but he is not my Lord. When you come to Christ, you come to him as your Lord, which means you come to him in obedience. And so there will be change, right? The prostitute can't work as a prostitute anymore. The hitman can't work as a hitman anymore. They have to forsake their lifestyles of sin. So if you look at chapter 2, then chapter 2, we see that the church in Colossia had a problem. So the letter, the letter to Ephesians is a wonderful letter because Paul doesn't really deal with big problems like false teaching or distorting the gospel. Uh, he's not attacking anything or anyone. He's not being attacked by false teachers. Ephesians is a beautiful and encouraging letter, right? And Colossians is the same, but there is a false teaching that Paul has to deal with. And we are not able to say exactly what it was that was being taught, what was the false teaching going on. Um, we don't know exactly what it was itself. Uh, but it does seem to be some form of Judaism that was being brought into Christianity. So look at verse 16 of chapter 2. It says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So even when you read verse 16, that sounds like it has to do with Jewish practice, right? Food and drink, festivals and new moons and the Sabbath. Then he says, verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insistent, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up with, without reasons by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not touch, do not, do not taste. Referring to, to things that all perish as they are used. 
according to human precepts and, and teachings. And then he says this in verse 23, and it's very significant. He says, these, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So we can infer from these passages that these false teachers are coming in and they're teaching about dietary laws and festivals and asceticism. So asceticism is a severe denying of food and materials. It's denying yourself of pleasures and indulgences. So the, t the false teachers are, are coming along and they're saying, do you really want to be holy? Well, remember the dietary laws from Leviticus. Remember the festivals. We have to keep all those things. You know, touch not this. Do not taste this. Do not eat these foods. Don't drink these drinks. And, uh, um, and when it comes to asceticism, that's just like severe denying of yourself. You know, it's like, you know, I'm not going to have nice food. I'm just going to have bread and water every day. That's, that's all I'm going to do. So uh, that's one thing. And they also worshipped angels. So we don't have a lot of information, but if you put this together with the book of Hebrews, uh, because of the writer of Hebrews is talking to Jews who attempted to leave the faith. And the writer of Hebrews makes the case that Jesus is greater than the angels. And so it seems a bit odd, but if you put it together with Colossians, it points to a practice during what's known as Second Temple Judaism. It seems at some point among the Jews, after the Second Temple was built, from that point in history onwards, there was this obsession with angels, right? There was even a rabbi who has been quoted as saying that God is nigh, but angels are nigher, right? God is close, but the angels are closer. And that is just ridiculous. So the problem is twofold. One, they gave a lot of importance to various spiritual powers and angels. Two, they put, on, they put a strong emphasis on, re, on outward re, religiosity, new moons, feasts, fasting, and so on. So that's, that's what might have been going on in Colossia. So Paul says these things look like wise things. It seems wise, right, to say we want to resist the flesh and so we will be ascetic. We will be uncomfortable. We are not going to indulge in any fleshly pleasures. No good food, no good drink, no good clothing, no comfort at all. We're just going to have dry bread and water every day. Uh, we're just going to live in a cave. We're just going to wear gray plain clothing. We're just going to have two pants, two shirts, and that's all, right? That kind of thing. And you can see how Christians can be tempted towards this kind of thinking. So that is why Paul says these things have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And do you know why they are no value? It's because it doesn't change the heart, right? You can deny yourself and eat dry bread with water all you want, what really matters is your heart, right? You could, you could not commit murder, but you could be so full of anger and bitterness and envy, right? You could not commit adultery or fornication, but your heart is full of lust. And you could not steal, but your heart is full of greed and covetousness. And so you can also be ascetic and not indulge the flesh, but in your heart, you are gluttonous and you have the pride of life. That is why Paul says these things are of not value. You can't say, I will change the externals and that'll fix the internal. It's the other way around, right? Your heart is what drives it, should drive the change in your behavior. So, okay, we're running out of time. So, um, and then in chapter three, just to summarize it, uh, he says, put on the new self. So again, a lot of overlap with Ephesians. 
sometimes he will say, sometimes he will actually say the exact same thing as in Ephesians. And then uh, he talks about wives and husbands, headship and submission, being godly parents, masters and slaves. And then continues that into chapter 4 where he gives his final greetings. Okay, so let's leave it there for tonight. Are there, are there any questions or uh, any thoughts that you guys would like to share on that? On Ephesians or Colossians or any questions? Oh, um, so, wait, sorry, what did you say? <laughs> no, I'm just remembering the, you know, the two truths of the already, already but not yet, mm. you know, as much as we are, we are seated with, you know, Christ in heavenly realms, but we're still in this body, um, we're still pilgrims here on earth, mm. and so yeah, I've just been reminded of, of that truth that, um, Although, you know, we still we do have the Holy Spirit uh, as our guarantee, but we're not yet there. Uh, we're not fully, okay, I wouldn't say fully redeemed in that sense, but like, as in the work of Christ, we're not enough, but um, we haven't, you know, uh, reached the, the promised land in that sense. So I was just commenting on Ephesians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's very true. And something that, um, you know, I, I like when, uh, you know, in scripture, they, they talk about like a foretaste, you know, you get a foretaste of the, the joy, the foretaste of the blessing. It's like, you know, um, I think it just, if you go with that picture, it, it you can't help but think of, you know, if it's just a taste, you know, it's just like a little thing and um, of the joy you've experienced of Christ in here, then you it's probably unimaginable, you know, what the whole meal is, you know, when we when we are there in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, and so, um, yeah, uh, like that's, that's, that's very true. It's remembering that, like that reality, but also looking forward to it, you know, just because we do have something of that blessing now. Um, I think it's, I think it's not just saying, you know, relax, take it easy here, but it's just saying there is a great promise waiting for you. Um, so that's very true. Okay, I think there's a question in chat. So Tanata is asking, so can women teach other men about the word outside of the church who are not their husbands? Please elaborate more on that. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering how you, you want me to elaborate. So I think uh, I would... I think most people would, would just ask about First Timothy 2 on that, right? It says, I do not permit a woman to teach. Da, 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 da. So, um, how, how do I put this? So, you know, when I, when I think of, of First, so remember when you think of First Timothy 2, and I think we'll get nicely into this topic when we get there, actually. Um, with First Timothy 2, you know, it's, very much speaking about in a church context, I should not permit a man to, I'm sorry, a woman to teach and exercise authority over a man, right? Um, and so that that very much is in keeping with the 
uh, within the church, you know, those who teach and, and uh, preach authoritatively. But when it comes to outside of the, out of, outside of the church, uh, it's, it's so broad. I don't think, I don't think it's a saying that you should not teach men about the word, you know, for one, like when you proclaim the gospel to unbelieving men, you know, that's one thing. Um, but yeah, I guess I'm saying like, I need more from your question, like, like maybe an example. Um, so teach how, like, like, are you running a Bible study for, for people? Are you saying like shame the gospel? That's just my, um, can a woman be a pastor? No, a woman cannot be a pastor. So the reason why a woman cannot be a pastor is because it's forbidden in scripture. It's forbidden, uh, first Timothy two, first Corinthians and, um, something like that. I was, okay, I'll get back to that. So I'm, I'm just going to speak on the woman pastoring thing. So, um, the the offices of eldership and of being an elder or being a pastor is, is only for men right um, that's the teaching of scripture that as even even when you go back to the old testament right so um remember the old testament god had the priestly line right the women there was a woman was not allowed to be a priest right and those were in essence the pastors of the day so um leadership um, authority is is given to to the men right so men are the leaders in the home in the marriage in the home and in the church right um so even even sorry at bible study deborah was a judge okay i'll answer that um so yes deborah was a, okay okay now i'm getting let me let me try and answer this systematically right so um just going back to if you draw even in biblical theology right uh, leadership and and authority is given to men and so uh, i think it's also f helpful for us to re always remember that leadership in in especially in scripture and as god has designed it is about responsibility right le leadership is the glad assumption of responsibility so god has always held men accountable right he holds a man accountable in a marriage in a marriage right uh in the when when you stand before god um at the at the end of time the man will have to answer for the marriage and the home and how he ran that right um the men the elders will have to give an account of the sheep um and there's even a consistency there right so think about it if if a man is the leader of the home and say his wife is the part of a church Who's the authority there? You know, who's so now does do, do they swap roles in church? You know what what happens there because now she's usurping. But anyways, um, so um, sorry, I lost my train of thought because I saw another question. But um, yeah, the simple answer is 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 no. Uh, scripture is very plain, very plain about that. Paul even gives a reason for for that in First Timothy two. And we'll, we'll, we'll exposition it very nicely when we get there. So that's a comeback. But a short answer, no. Deborah was a judge. Yes, Deborah was a judge. But uh, she, she's a judge. She's not, she wasn't a priest, right? Judges were not, um, were not like, were not given any spiritual authority. Um, and she was, 
she was so remember like even scripture says that whenever women are in leadership in place of leadership in society that is society under judgment right so deborah being a judge was an indictment on the nation of israel it's not like israel saw deborah and they were like hooray no it's because all the men were cowardly and there was they, they did not stand up so god said you know what i'm going to use a woman because you are not acting like a man right time and time again you see that uh, in scripture like paul encourages like act like men even in the old testament um, um you see that kind of language so deborah deborah was a judge she wasn't a pastor she wasn't a priest she wasn't any of that um okay going back to Danazwa. so bible study so in your bible study are you are you authoritatively you know um directing that man's life then you, that you probably should not do that um that's why um so yeah like in a bible study i would say that's not wise you, sh- you should not do that um you should not lead a man which is why you'd see like uh, especially with our church you see a lot of mixed gender bible studies are being led by men um when it's a woman leading it tends to be a women's ministry that kind of thing but say a guy doesn't know i will tell him more about the word yeah yeah tell him tell him but so there's there's a um uh okay okay don't let me come back to you because i see uh leo was first there so it says in ephesians 1 verse 11 it's when he speaks of our inheritance it's just inheritance an umbrella word for all the affirmation blessings from verse 1 to 10 what does it speak of what we will inherit in the life to come so just reading it quickly Um, 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 so, yeah, so I think, so I'd, I'd say it's both, right, in that we, so, like, in keeping of, uh, I think that the point that I was trying to mention is that these are, like, you know, the full eternal blessings that we get a taste of now. You know, so it's definitely speaking of what, what we'll inherit in the life to come. We'll experience the fullness of that. We'll, ex- we'll experience the fullness of the riches of his of his grace. You know, we'll experience all of that. But, um, yeah. Um, so it's it's like so. I want to say it's both, right? We experience. We're gonna get. It's promising the fullness of it, right? But we experience something of it now, a foretaste of it, if I can put it that way. Um, okay, then back to Danatwa. Well, no, but say a guy doesn't know, I will tell him more about the word. Yeah, tell him, tell him about the word. But rem- like, remember, keep in mind that when, whenever, so assuming this guy is a believer, right? We call to make disciples, right? So, in a sense, Bible study is a form of discipleship. You're discipling someone, right? Um, because you 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 not only just like giving him knowledge, but you building or fostering a relationship with him, and so um, uh, I think guys should be discipled by guys, men women should be discipled by women because um, wisdom and we can get into it like all the details, but I'll just say that. Um, but so this is not to say like you shouldn't say anything whenever there's there's anything wrong, but there's there's very much just like 
you know, you see examples even in scripture of women sharing, um, going back and forth in scripture with, with other people, but you don't see women leading things and saying, okay, here's this Bible study. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to teach you all these things. Um, that's, that's, there, there's a wisdom aspect to it. And uh, I feel like I'm not giving a proper answer, but I think when you get to First Timothy, we'll be able to get into it because it's such a controversial um, uh, topic, I guess, in this day and age. I'm starting to hear you. I don't know if it's just me. Like I can hear you, but not too clearly. Say, say, like, can you just try say that again? <laughs> 